Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The poetic term Dark Ages has fallen out of fashion recently, but we still tend to think of the early medieval period as one that was characterized by social collapse and lack of order and chaos and war. However, my guests today, David Perry and Matt Gabriel, are trying to redress that balance, showing that the medieval world was a colorful cosmopolitan time of significant and huge advances. They're here to tell me about what they call the Bright Ages. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Guys, would you like to introduce yourselves to our audience? I'm David Perry, and I am a historian and journalist. I work at the University of Minnesota as an academic advisor, and I'm one of the authors of our book. And Matt's going to tell you a little more about it and himself. Yeah, uh, my name is Matthew Gabriel. I'm a professor of medieval studies. I'm the chair of the Department of Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech. Yeah, and I'm one of the co-authors, and I'm very excited to have this conversation. And our book is called The Bright Ages. We should mention that, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah. yeah, the actual title of the book. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and so in revisions, anyway, it's called The Bright Ages. And from the very start, from the very first moment, we wanted to go right at this myth of the Dark Ages and tell a different story. I mean, it's interesting as a choice of title. I mean, we'll drill into the history and the details uh, later, but it's an interesting, clear statement of intent for a title. It's basically saying they weren't dark. They weren't ignorant savages. There was a lot more going on. And, and I find this idea is a pervasive one that whatever we do today is so much better, so much more complicated, and we're so much more intelligent and enlightened than people back then, whenever then is your chosen period. And I think this is a, an image that comes largely from the entertainment world. Would you guys agree with that? We see a lot of dull colours and we see a lot of mud and filth in films and TV, basically. Yeah, I think that's entirely fair. I think that 
the, the myth of the dark ages, like it, it has kind of an academic pedigree, but it's also picked up and reemphasized by the entertainment industry as well. The anecdote we always like to tell because it's a good anecdote and it's actually a true anecdote is like how we came to write this book was um, I was in London. I went to the British Library back in early 2019 when they had the big Anglo-Saxon uh, kingdoms exhibition. And it was just a really magnificent um, exhibition. Everything was kind of gold, these, these reliquaries, uh, illuminated manuscripts, bright colors and kind of vibrant descriptions of an early medieval England that was kind of interconnected with the rest of Europe and even down through the Mediterranean, North Africa, um, what we call the Middle East as well. And, you know, you, you kind of shuffle to the gift shop and, you know, I'm looking around and British Library has a lot of books there in the gift shop. And I was looking at the books and the stuff in early medieval England was really excellent. A lot of new scholarship. But the general histories of the European Middle Ages that I saw there were old and they kind of trafficked in this idea of, again, the Dark Ages. And the thing that was so striking about it was it didn't match what I had just seen. You know, it didn't match the exhibition itself. You know, it was it was talking about kind of a closed off world, a world of superstition, a world of, you know, a lack of learning of kind of darkness and mud and filth and things like that. And so I remember very distinctly, David and I had known each other for a really long time. We had talked about this, you know, working together for a long period, but hadn't really decided what we do. So I pulled out my phone and I texted him right there in the gift shop and said, you know, we need to write a book on the Middle Ages. And David texted back right then. We'll call it the Bright Ages. The oh, moment. wow. You know, it was late afternoon in London. It was early in the morning during work in um, Minnesota. And that was it. And then we had to figure out what we meant by that. You know, the thing about the Dark Ages is that for something that I think is fundamentally not true, that the Middle Ages, the European Middle Ages is somehow darker than other periods, that it's less knowable, that people were more savage, all of these myths, I think they're fundamentally not true. Not that People in the Middle Ages weren't sometimes quite awful to each other, and not that there aren't moments in which sources are better or worse in terms of survivability. But I just don't think there's anything particularly dark about this particular thousand years. It's a thousand years, it's a long time. Everything happened. In a thousand years, everything can and will happen. But that it has such weight from, you know, from Petrarch and from Gibbon, right? And then from kind of 19th century academics and 21st century economists are really, a lot of them are really wedded to the necessity of the fall of Rome in order to tell their long history of economic growth and change. They need the dark ages. And then also TV series and the need to literally make them dark, to film them through lenses that literally make things darker. And I've got to tell you that medieval people had sunshine and they had <laughs> green trees and they had the birds singing, right? Like, it was dark at night with the lights out, you know, with the candles out, but it was not darker than another period. So we have kind of both this entertainment world that locates it in the modern imagination. And then we do have 600 years of writing making this case. And it's just not true. And we're not the first people to say it's not true. In fact, one of the things that really motivates us is that every academic medievalist that we know finds this disconnect between the popular imagination of what the European Middle Ages were and this actual thing that we study when we open our books and when we read our sources. You know, for me, I'm a historian of Venice. When you walk into San Marco and it's literally covered in gold, every inch of it is shining. What could be less dark? And, you know, the building's right there. It's right there. So there's this disconnect. And that's really, that's really motivated us. It's fascinating. I, and I wonder whether it comes from this sort of slight obsession of some academics, probably the Victorian academics, the <laughs> idea of empire 
and that the, there was the British Empire and that was sort of bestriding the world and it was the new Rome or whatever metaphors they wanted to compare. And they were comparing it to ancient Rome and then noting that everything collapsed and was awful, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it sort of suited their narrative, but bore very little resemblance to the actual historical period. I mean, colours, for example, as far as I'm aware, colours are to do largely with a lot of wealth. You know, if, yeah. if you were wealthy and you could have colour and they weren't subtle with their colouring, you know, they liked their bright colours. Yeah. I mean, you look at some of the brooches with that beautiful, uh, is it enamelling or sort of the, the red gems? I can't remember what they're called. The, the red gem work on the hilts of swords and, and all of this kind of stuff that we see in hordes. Yeah. Yeah. To this day, once it's cleaned up, it's incredibly bright yeah. and beautiful. And they're garnets and they came from India, right? In this right. period of <laughs> darkness and separation and isolation, there was, you know, an international trade from India to Southern England. I mean, that's yeah. a long way for a gemstone to go. And, and yeah, and it's not like, you know, on the overnight flight, yeah. but it's also not 500 years. I mean, it's within a lifetime or less. These, these objects move and then they're beautiful. Yeah. And they obviously took months to travel. Yeah. But at the same time, there were lots of people doing it. Uh, yeah, right. There was a constant supply and a constant demand for it. Otherwise, yeah. you know, it wouldn't be a high status thing. But how was the population? So the population during Roman occupation of the island of Britain, for example, I think decreased, didn't it, in what we used to call the dark age with the early medieval period? Is there evidence of decline of any sort? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the thing that we are trying to emphasize like with the book is that the use of the word decline or rise like those are kind of political terms and what we mean by that is that so we so we try to talk about transformation because that just recognizes that there's change sometimes that change is good sometimes that change is bad how you determine good and bad like that has more to do about kind of where you're coming from like as a historian or as a medieval author right like you want to say this thing is is a good thing or a bad thing um, absolutely, there's a change in long-term trade that happens, um, you know, as we move out of kind of quote-unquote Roman Britain into, uh, you know, the period of, of early medieval England. There's a change in the population. There's a de-urbanization that happens, you know, away from Roman settlements with with large concentrated population centers to a more rural thing. And that happens kind of across Europe as well. But at the same time, like like culturally, religiously, socially, there is a lot of continuity between, you know, before and after, you know, the thing that I think that happens oftentimes, especially in kind of popular imaginations and like historians, we kind of know this, but we fall into this trap too at the same time. You know, it's not like anybody rolls out of bed and looks out the window and says like, oh my God, it's the middle ages nowadays, yes, yeah. right? Like it's not like a sudden imagined break whenever these things happen. Like uh, there's a historian by the name of R.I. Moore who talked about the expression, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And the thing that's great about that um, that expression is that, you know, each and every individual straw is not kind of different from one another, but from the perspective of the camel, like one straw can make a huge difference. So again, like just thinking about kind of different perspectives. So like depopulation, for example, like, yes, absolutely. One of the things that happens in the later Roman Empire is that there seems to be plague that sweeps through, endemic disease that sweeps through. There are different um, invasions and wars that, that occur, you know, both local and, and more global. And this is true across Europe as well. So there are population decreases, but that's true locally. You know, it's more important to think about how those populations matter locally than kind of on a global scale, because other places see rises. People move to relatively safer spaces. They become 
residents of other areas. And so what we're trying to do is kind of pull back and say like, well, if you ask that same question, but look at it from a different perspective, you have a very different sense of kind of what the quote unquote fall of Rome really meant. And we can talk about continuities as well as structural breaks. So did the Roman Empire retreat quickly or was it actually over a quite an extended period of sort of lessening influence? Would it have been perceived, do you think, as quite gradual by people on the ground or was there a sort of sudden, did the legions suddenly pack their bags, march off to the south and get on boats and leave everybody going, what was that? That was the Romans. Why are they going? (laughs) I mean, there are some moments like that, right? So it depends where and when you're talking about. And if we're talking about England, there is a very clear moment of military retreat, but that doesn't mean that it's regarded as apocalypse. And, you know, the people who are left, are they still calling themselves Romans? Are they still thinking of themselves? Were they ever, right? I mean, there's a a nuanced story to tell there. One of the reasons we open with, I mean, there's a lot of reasons we open our book with Gala Placidia, this empress in the fifth century, is that she was there at the sack of Rome in 410. She was actually taken as kind of a prisoner of war and then married to a Visigothic ruler. To what extent she consented to that marriage is sort of unclear. So she was there and she was also there just beforehand and she was involved in killing a lot of Germanic soldiers. I mean, she's involved in it. So you would think someone who was literally taken as kind of a prisoner of war in 410 would have a a sour view of the Roman Empire. But in fact, about 20 years later, she's back in Italy and she's writing a letter to the emperor in Constantinople, essentially saying, hey, you guys are doing Christianity wrong. You need to listen to the pope. You need to listen to us. Italy is where the Roman Empire is very much, you know, 430, 440 it would have been a big surprise to her if you had told her the Roman Empire had fallen. That doesn't erase the experience of someone in England who was used to having a certain kind of connection to the continent, and that connection has broken, right? They can both be true. And one of the things I think that we can do, and that Matt and I try to do, is we can say that experience in England is real without saying, the fall of the Roman Empire. We can say there's a population decline and there are fewer sources without saying the Dark Ages, because one of those things is true, population decline, fewer sources. The other one is a kind of judgment. And, you know, all judgments like that are a little bit tricky, but it's a specific judgment that has 700 years of baggage that ties into exactly, as you were saying, the sort of Victorian history, or there's a lot of stuff going on in 19th century German universities that still shapes I mean, I'm always happy to blame the Victorians for things, but let's not <laughs> let us not let the Prussians off the hook either, um, right? I mean, in terms of the formation of the discipline of history, and in some ways, the, the formation of modern European conceptions of time itself, which now we're, we're kind of floating way out there, right? But, but time is something we invent and reinvent and keep reinventing. Um, there's a history to how we talk about time. So we can say fewer people and still not say the Dark Ages. And Matt, you go. Yeah, I wanted to come back. You know, you were talking about the removal of the legions from England, for example, as as a way, kind of a segue here. You know, one of the things that I think that we know, right, as modern historians, is that they never came back. I don't think that they would have known that. And so the moving around of Roman armies throughout the 5th and the 4th century, or even like the 3rd century, like that was a commonplace. Like they were redeployed and they did other things. And so the idea that, yeah, okay, you know, maybe these legions are going, they're heading to Gaul or something like that, that may have been significant. Some people may have said like, oh, I wonder if they're coming back or not. But the idea that they would definitively never return to the island, I think that that's a modern reimagining of the period, which is kind of, again, kind of not necessarily honest to the period itself. 
That's very interesting, of course, because you're absolutely right, because we're, I'm looking at it with hindsight, knowing that they were leaving and never coming back. But somebody in one of the port towns just sees Roman legionaries getting on a boat, as they yeah. always have done, going away, and it's business as usual. And then maybe after a couple of years, somebody would go, <laughs> um, that's unusual, but none have come back this way. I wonder if they've gone somewhere else. I mean, it might be that that was actually perfectly normal, that they might use different ports and you wouldn't necessarily know about it. I always think history is interesting because it can only ever really look backwards with that sort of view of the past and comparing it to what we're going through today, you know, in a pandemic. Oh, yeah. And I always wonder how it will be seen in 50 years, 200 years. You know, will this be significant? Yeah. Will this make a chapter in a book? Will it be a footnote? <laughs> will it be forgotten about and argued? Will people go, no, nothing changed. Nobody did anything. It's all rubbish. You know? <laughs> I do try to imagine the history of this time period from sort of the 27th century. I try to think like a medievalist looking back 500 years. And there are some easy calls, right? Like nobody in the 14th century thought they were in the middle of the Hundred Years' War, um, <laughs> right? And yeah. World War One and World War Two will be seen as a single event. Both Iraq wars, I mean, they're both George Bush against Saddam Hussein. Can you imagine the exam questions on which George Bush it is and how that yeah. will can? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I work on the Fourth Crusade in which there are three emperors named Alex or Alexius within about ninety days of each other, or maybe six months of each other. And I think about how will COVID and like the nineteen eighteen flu be talked about as kind of a single event, um, mm. or you know, sort of the rise of the modern pandemic as one story. I don't really know, but it is something that, as a medievalist, but also as a journalist. When I get off this interview, I'm going to be working on a piece about Medicaid, right? So very right. hypermodern policy issue. That's one of my other my other fields. So as a journalist, I do try to kind of sometimes think, well, 500 years from now, think putting that medievalist lens on what will we see? Hmm. And I don't claim to know any answers, but I always find it useful as a way of thinking. I think that helicopter view or sort of looking at your own society helps inform how you look at earlier societies as well. Because right. one of the things that I'm fascinated about is what's the personal experience like? I mean, we also, you know, what limited data we have to go on. I mean, obviously, it's quite a reasonable amount of archaeology, and we have to put archaeology puzzles together with quite a lot of guesswork, I suppose, and supposed and things like that. And the vast amount of ritual products that are out there is extraordinary. If you can't call it anything, you call it ritual. But, but <laughs> I, I sort of think, what was the average person? They got up, they did the work they had to do, a lot of subsistence farming. I presume in the early medieval period, there was the vast majority of people were working to feed themselves. Uh, the urban population wasn't very big, was it? I'm talking about medieval yeah. England here in particular. It's a very small proportion of society. Mm -hmm. So broadly speaking, your ancestors were very likely to be working on a small farm, trying to feed themselves and their family. That was their main concern. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. And even in like urban environments, like, you know, as far as we can tell, and I second your comments about archaeology, like as a historian who mostly deals with kind of text, sometimes printed, sometimes in manuscript, like archaeology to me is like wizardry, wizardry sometimes, <laughs> like, like that they can extrapolate the things they do. Like, I mean, I don't read enough archaeology and, and I really need to read more. But from what I understand, even in what we would call perhaps urban or village environments, you know, people would have their own plots of land. They might be right next to the place they were living or they might be in communal fields or something like that. So a lot of time was spent on agriculture. 
that's not to say that there weren't other occupations, like because, you know, you would need other artisans like coopers who would make barrels and shoemakers, leather makers, you know, tanners and stuff like that. So there must have been, you know, within that an accommodation for some sort of surplus that could be sold or bought by these other people. But at the same time, you also had a much wider swath of the population in the workforce because, you know, the women would be out in the fields, the children would be on the fields and stuff like that. You know, the everyday life, I mean, that that's a really kind of fascinating, it's not something we, we deal with a whole lot in the book, you know, because that's just not the story that we wanted to tell as we only had about 300 pages, like we could have written, you know, <laughs> 600, 700 more. And there's thousands of other words that we even cut from, you know, the version that we have here. But at the same time, like the everyday life, I think that the thing that's really important about remembering that is, is it reminds us that these were people in that they made decisions um, that they weren't, you know, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier is looking at history from the past. Like it, it seems foreordained that things would have turned out as they did, but that's not the case. Like, you know, they were, they were limited in the decisions that they could make. And some of those decisions were mundane, like, you know, do I go down this lane or that lane, or, you know, do I go out to the field today or do I go to the tavern to have a drink? You know, those had consequences, but sometimes they're they're kind of bigger things. And that social history kind of reminds us again that the story that we're telling is is messy because we're dealing with human beings, even, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago. Yeah, I also wonder how they got their information and how quickly it would have gone through society. I mean, one king dies, another king turns up, tax collectors come occasionally. You know, you've got fairs where people gossip and talk about probably mostly local things, and then go, oh, did you know we've got a new king? Oh, have we? <laughs> okay, all right. And then they talk about so-and-so's cows getting out or somebody's drains overflowing or, you know, all the things that, in fact, we usually talk about today with our friends and colleagues. We sometimes talk about great events and socio-political grand schemes of things, but quite often we're talking about somebody's had kids or somebody's got covid or whatever it yeah, might yeah, be yeah. and these are not trivial because they're really important to the individual but they're not remarkable from a historical perspective because they're just everyday life hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the reasons I ride horses and wear armor sometimes is because... It's exactly what they would have experienced. So I know that armor can chafe if it's not fitted properly. I know it gets sweaty and hot, and I know that it can get claustrophobic. And as a human being, I'm almost certain they would have experienced exactly the same yeah. phenomena. Um, and that Roman soldier, that Roman soldier leaving 
not necessarily sunny Britain. Maybe it's a rainy day <laughs> and he's leaving and he's going back to Italy or something and he's going, brilliant, at last. I get to go back to, <laughs> right, I yeah. get, get to go home. Yeah. I can get rid of my socks. I can stop writing letters to my mum saying, can you send more socks, please? <laughs> we do have some of those letters, don't we? From the, yep. from the yeah, people actually asking for more socks from mum. And I just think that's the human story. And he would have no clue that we'd be looking back and going, oh, there was the legions leaving for the last time. As you say, he was just going to his next posting. That's right. I'm so glad you're saying all this. It's so important to us to think about the fundamental humanity of medieval people, with which brings all the potential of humans to do things. You know, at one point we do write the sentence, yes, medieval people had sex and they liked it, right? Which you wouldn't think you'd need to say, but in fact, I have encountered so many students who like who believe, well, they were all Catholic, so they must have been very uptight about sex. And I'm like, do you know how you were made by your Catholic parents? Is <laughs> um, not something I would say in a classroom, but you know, yeah. medieval people... They went to the bathroom. They also told jokes about poops and farts. Like we have some of them. There is, of course, this huge kind of dark matter of the oral world, you know, the world of oral storytelling, which only a tiny fraction of it makes it into a text that survives for us. But some does. We have their stories. We have their fart jokes. We also have, you know, fart jokes from ancient Athens, right? Like it's it's one of the humorous. I, I talk. I talk about fart jokes perhaps more than I should, but I do it. I do it because so much of humor is so contextual, except for kind of gross body humor, which seems to be universal as far back as we have evidence uh, from around the world. Gross body humor. People think it's funny. And the medieval people did too. You know, but also things like, again, Gala Placidia, she had this baby. Uh, I talk about her a lot. We end our first chapter with this fact. And I, I, I still feel very emotional about it as a father. She had this baby when she was in Spain who died within his first year. Mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of all we know about him until she dies in Rome. She didn't go to Rome to die. She went to Rome to talk to the Pope, but she dies in Rome. And because she's there, she's buried in Rome. And there's a, an infant silver casket that she's buried with. Has she just been carrying it with her the whole time? Mm -hmm. Did she have it shipped there? Did someone else bring it from Ravenna to put in her tomb? We don't have that information, but I do think we can know that she was a mother who lost an infant and, and didn't forget about it, right? That didn't, yes. that she had that human experience of mourning a dead child. And that matters to me. That matters to me to think about it. And it matters to me. We have the evidence of Gala Placidia and this silver casket, but we can also, I think, extrapolate to say that every medieval parent who lost a child felt something and felt something important. And that's got to be part of the story that we tell. I sometimes think that they must have actually been very strong-minded and strong-willed because the, the amount of issues, you know, you live a subsistence plus lifestyle, you know, you live without central heating, you live without running water, you know, food scarcity is a real thing. Being hungry was common. Starving was possibly not so common, I don't think, but was ever present. There were famines, you know, people died of hunger, which in the Western world is extremely rare about outside extraordinary circumstances. So they lived with a lot more immediate threats, you know, the disease, no antibiotics. If your axe gets wayward and you cut the back of your hand and you're unlucky, that might be the end of you. You know, that might kill you a few weeks later with infection. Not saying they didn't have medicine of some sort, they, they could deal with these things, but it wasn't necessarily as good as modern medicine. And I, I just think they must have been really strong-willed to kind of keep going 
in the face of that. Or maybe, you know, there's no yeah. option. You just keep going. You've got to plant the corn. <laughs> Otherwise, it's definitely not going to grow. No, I think that's absolutely true. I think the thing that, that sometimes gets lost there in that conversation is that all of those kind of great things. And, and first of all, I have to say, like, like oftentimes, like when I'm teaching students, like a, a like a medieval world survey or something like that, it's like, oh, you know, if you could go back in time to any period in the Middle Ages, where would you go? And I would say, I would never, ever <laughs> go back in time to the actual Middle Ages. Like, no, I would not step inside that time machine because I like indoor heat. I love antibiotics. These are important things. But I think the thing that, that we sometimes lose, lose sight of is how modern and how recent those types of things really are, is that for the vast majority of recorded human history, right, like, we didn't have those types of things. And so the everyday life of somebody in the European Middle Ages and early medieval England or, or kind of whenever was, like you said, that kind of constant threat. Like, is this disease going to take me out? I have a cut on my hand. Is it going to get infected? And like you said, there were traditional medicines, there were poultices, you know, herbal remedies and, and all sorts of stuff. We have a lot of literature that survives about how people took medicine seriously they didn't understand germ theory, of course, like, you know, we do now, but they had a sense of kind of what was going on. You know, in our chapter, like on the Black Death, for example, like we talk about kind of the University of Paris and the debates that were going on there. And they came up with the idea that there was kind of bad air, that it seemed like it was transmissible as people got proximity. They advocated things like quarantine in order to stop the spread of the disease. Like, that's right. Like, I mean, they were, you know, they didn't understand exactly why it was bad air. They thought it was like a conjunction of planets and stuff like that. And also the devil because they were theologians. Right. But like, but at the same time, like they did understand, like there was proximity. I mean, there was a problem. They, they used their intellects because they were smart people to, to kind of try to figure out what was going on. But like you said, like every day was potentially a struggle. I mean, you know, we live in a world in which those everyday occurrences, if you have a certain amount of wealth and you live in a certain part of the world, are not problems. But, you know, they didn't have those types of securities. And even that is so modern. You know, I, I just thinking forward 500 years, I can imagine a history, the golden age of antibiotics, you know, 1897 to 2097. And then, and then right, it's, it's easy to imagine. And even things like farming that you're talking about, I, I could be wrong about this. And hopefully a listener will tell me if I am. But I believe that until the invention of modern fertilizer in the 19th century, the vast majority of humans were engaged in farming. And that's only in the last couple hundred years with fertilizer that that's changed. I mean, I do think medieval people, the medieval people who made it were tough, but in a way that humans are tough and that humans adapt to the circumstances around them and, and find ways to live. And this is sort of the, the human condition, right? And often it doesn't even show up in the records because it's just how life is. What shows up in the records is when something changes for the better or the worse, you know, when there's a big shift in a quality of living because things get better or there is a famine or a disaster, an environmental collapse or something. Those are the moments in which we start to see the cracks. But otherwise, it's humanity. And this is the way it works. Just to get back to the bright ages, the dark ages, we typically now tend to call it the early medieval period. When in your mind does the dark ages sort of officially stop and what what are the what, what is the sort of moment in history where not the moment but what is the sort of period in history when the 19th century scholars sort of felt that it wasn't the dark ages anymore do you talk about that in the book about the sort of the end of the notional dark ages well i like to say the dark ages begin in the 1370s when petrarch starts writing about the medieval past and that's what they right. begin and, and, and we're still in them we're still okay. in them because right. he kind of creates this idea right so we fundamentally do believe that there are things that happen in this thousand year period that are different 
eventually than were happening beforehand and, and that are different than are happening later with the opening of the Atlantic world to European exploration and then colonization and you know the the Reformation. Again, we're not sort of pretending there's not change because that would be wrong. And we're, we're really trying to say things that are true. We're just arguing against this, this darkness. So we end a couple different times and I'll talk about some of them. And then Matt can talk about another one. In one sense, we end with this moment in which people like Petrarch in this, this intellectual movement that they call a rebirth, they call the Renaissance, start to really articulate a difference between themselves, the people that came before. Now, we don't think that difference is as real as they did, but they start telling a different story. Um, and so that's a moment in which we come to a close, and even as we, we push back against that story. But that's in the 14th century, right? And we actually don't say that's the end, but we skip forward a couple hundred years. I'll let Matt talk about that. So one of the things that I think we're, we're trying to do and I'll get to the, the anecdote that David is talking about in just one second, is, is I think there is actually an Atlantic divide in kind of terminology as well that I want to kind of acknowledge in that, mm. you know, I think that the idea of the Dark Ages in the American context is the whole medieval period itself. And that's one thing that we're trying to push back again. And I know in, in the British context, in the UK context, like it's, it's specifically kind of related to, to the early medieval period. But I think those things are related because what unites them in the American imagination is that the medieval period, the European Middle Ages, are a period that are kind of unknowable, that there's a lack of sources. And so in the UK system, like that's that's kind of the post-Roman, you know, early medieval period as well. So what we're trying to do is to, from the very outset, and I think this is what David was, was just saying, is that we're trying from the very outset to show how the Dark Ages are conceptualization. And that they're a conceptualization that began in the 14th century and that have continued to this day. Boundaries have shifted very dramatically, but I think that, you know, they have this thing in common. So that's why, you know, Petrarch is really important, even though it's outside of kind of the early medieval period. The other anecdote that we do, we do talk about as we kind of move into the kind of epilogue, which we call Dark Ages, I should say, in the book. <laughs> is this debate that happens in the 16th century in 1550 in Valladolid in Spain. And it's between a friar from the New World, Bartolomeo de las Casas, and a Spanish humanist by the name of Sepulveda. And they're arguing about the natives. And they're arguing specifically about the humanity of the natives. And what the repercussions of that debate are is like, what can the Spanish crown do in its colonization and its Christianization efforts? What's really interesting, and I think that's really important to talk about and why we included this, because you can see the intellectual lines of both of those debaters all the way back, tracing them back a thousand years. Because this medieval friar, who's a product of an order that was created out of the Inquisition, a period of repression, is actually arguing for more humane treatment and understanding about the polytheism and the traditional practices of the natives in the Americas. And the humanist, the product of kind of classical learning, is the one arguing for suppression, violence, and almost wholesale, not necessarily genocide, but violence on a large scale. But you can see moments of that all the way back through the early Middle Ages, you know, all the way back from the, the Carolingians, who we talk about in the ninth century, um, you know, similar discussions about the process of Christianization that are happening in England in the sixth and seventh centuries with, uh, you know, missionaries being sent from Rome and things like that. So again, like these moments of dark ages-ness, if you will, I just <laughs> made that up, TM, not Gabriel, is uh, dark ages-ness. 
you know, can be seen. And that's why it's important to think of why those two last moments are so important, even for the earlier period, to understand how this idea of darkness is one, an intellectual construct, but it has very real repercussions for how people lived and how they could experience their lives. I think it's really interesting. I remember at school being taught that the Dark Ages starts 410 when the Romans leave, and then the Dark Ages finish October 1066 when the Norman, <laughs> when the Norman yeah. conquest happens, you know, and then the medieval period happens in September 1485 when, when Richard <laughs> yeah, yeah. III yep. is killed, you know, yep. and in some ways I can understand why schools need to sort of give what we're led to believe are facts. I mean, yeah, Richard was killed at Battle of Bosworth in 1485, no question about that, but it it's convenient. It's a convenient historical fact to then say something started or something ended. And I think as we grow up, we realize that that's useful when you're younger, but you need to discard that entirely because it's just completely nonsense, really. When I was, I think, in eighth grade in the US model, I was taught that an atom I'm I'm not a scientist, but an atom was sort of two concentric circles, right? With an electron circle and then the inside circle. And then you could count things and figures. And that's not at all what it looks like. (laughs) That's how I was taught. I can remember Mr. Rod. He was like 6'4", an Olympic water polo player, a physicist, (laughs) drawing this concentric circles to tell me about science. That's not true. And I'm going to leave it to the science educators to decide whether or not it's a useful way to teach 13-year-olds about how atoms work. But there's something similar I think we do with history. I mean, for me, it's not even the Dark Ages. It's the the one that I remember is the feudalism pyramid with the king at the top and kind of the peasant at the bottom. And, the spirit. and there is no moment in the Middle Ages in which power is ever organized in this sort of pyramid structure. It never works like that. I suppose what they are is convenient quasi-truths which can help people who are non-specialists to get some sense of history. I mean, a lot of people aren't that interested in, you know, in history, but they at least have some <laughs> idea that it was a thing called the Dark Ages. And it's, it's quite an evocative term, even though it's completely wrong. And therefore, I suppose it has utility in the very broadish brushstrokes, which also then fire us to dig into it and actually react against it, which is what the Bright Ages does, your book. It's sort of, here's the established thing, Now we can actually explore that idea in depth, dismantle it and say it's wrong. But you've got to have the thing to push against almost, which was the spark for this book, which I think is kind of great. So in a way, Petrarch, you should thank him. (laughs) Never, never. I will never thank him. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think that one of the things that David and I have, I think we share in common is, you know, we both are teachers. And so we have classrooms that are full of students who we've worked on and the best kind of pedagogy, the best kind of teaching, you know, and and this is true, like, even if you're just an enthusiast who picks up a book for the first time is to think about, you know, your first encounter as an order. And so like in the book, for example, like we spend a lot of time putting together for the reading list at the back of the book. Like if you liked the stuff in this chapter, there's so much more that we could tell you about it so much more that other scholars, really wonderful colleagues have been doing over the past 50 to 100 years. And so go explore that. Go out into that ocean of scholarship and, you know, let yourself sail and see what you see and explore. But like you said, they need a basis in order to understand, to orient themselves, right? They need some sort of landmark. And so that's what we're hoping to provide. And I think those kind of dates and names 
oftentimes they're taken as the end all of, you know, historical research, but they're really just the beginning. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. I think these are springboards. And I, I love the idea of bibliographies. I think they're really important because you can suddenly drill down into another area. And one of the things I sometimes find in my research is I do quite a bit of research for a video or a podcast or whatever, and I think I know something. So I do the podcast and I do the video and then I kind of keep sort of looking into it. And then I realize there's a whole bunch of stuff I've missed out and a whole bunch of stuff <laughs> I need to rethink. And I think research, academic, yeah, any pursuit that's honest, you kind of realize there's an awful lot more to discover <laughs> as you go along. And in a way, that's wonderful, but it's also potentially quite depressing. I'm going to yeah. spend my whole life trying to get to the truth. And there actually probably isn't a truth. There's probably different data out there. You know, it's something that I think we need to say more. There is at least, I would say, broadly an understanding that, for example, scientific knowledge changes, whereas history is just the facts. So that when historians come up with new things, oh, that's revisionist, as if revising our knowledge isn't the whole project, right? Like to learn more things. And there's there's one kind of really easy example for a medievalist, which is the story of the Black Death or the second plague pandemic, which every medievalist, including me, we've been teaching the story that's wrong. Um, that the Black Death arose in the early 14th century and within a couple decades traveled all the way to Europe to hit Italy in 1348. I mean, I told that story in classrooms so many times, and it's just not true because really a, a scholar named Monica Green, but Monica would be the first person to say working in collaboration with a lot of other people, including people doing ADNA analysis, have found that the plague in early 13th century Central Asia. They found examples of it in the Mongol siege of Baghdad in the 1250s. So there's a decades long story that totally changes what we have to teach. It's a completely new narrative, it's a completely new chronology. And I think that's great. I am excited to have been wrong and to learn something better. But I understand why some people can find that threatening or confusing. Yeah, yeah. Also, people think what you're saying now has got to be untrue, because if you're correcting it, um, <laughs> obviously what you're saying now is untrue. And it's like, yeah, possibly, possibly yeah. we'll find other things. And But isn't that what knowledge is all about? That's about knowing things and learning and revising. And human beings don't really like change, but we are <laughs> involved with change all the time. And it, it can be hard to admit that you were wrong. We now have more data, which means that yeah, we were technically wrong, but we were right at the time, but we're hopefully even more right now. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important, especially for, for historians to acknowledge the lineages of scholarship that have come before them, right? Is, you know, you build upon things and it's not like you're just kind of like accreting things, like literally piling layer of information upon layer of information. But, you know, you're refining conclusions. Sometimes you find better sources. Sometimes you have more sophisticated analyses. Sometimes like David was saying in relation to the Black Death, sometimes interdisciplinary work, collaboration with other disciplines, archaeologists, um, geneticists, or environmental historians, like you, you just learn things that you didn't know before. And that's okay. I mean, then, then we have a better, fuller picture of the past. I love the idea, though, as somebody who seeks knowledge, that you could wake up and there can be a whole bunch of new things to learn today. Yeah. And, and for me, yeah. I think that's incredibly invigorating and exciting. It's not frightening at all. It's uplifting and in every way, a positive experience. And, you know, Jason, I think the kind of work that you're doing in terms of trying to get the most authentic armor that you can <laughs> and sort of recreation theory or facsimile scholarship. I mean, I think 
So just this morning, literally this morning, I was reading about a woman who's trying to hand stitch the entire Bayou tapestry, um, in the entire thing. And she's like, yeah, they made all kinds of mistakes. Here's a hand with two right thumbs or a person with two right thumbs on their body. It's a UK story. I don't have it at hand because I just read it as opposed to, you know, having it as prep for this conversation. But her work is going to teach us things that we didn't know. And I mean, I think it's a, you know, there are people obviously who are just doing it for fun and that's great. I'm all, I'm all in favor of that too. But the people who are really trying to recreate and then what does it feel like on your shoulders to carry this much metal while, you know, charging at someone that's new information or it's confirming information. It's like, oh yeah, I read this in the source and that's exactly what it feels like. I mean, I think that that's another place where people like me and Matt who are trained in one kind of research method need to listen and need to learn. I I had a student who once made a medieval dress really from scratch. I mean, she didn't raise the sheep, but she did get the raw wool and she got matter roots, which make a red dye and turned her whole bathtub bright red. Um, And she taught me things about medieval clothing that I didn't know um, because she just tried to do everything. But that's not to say that she's done, right? The next one, she may say, oh, I totally misunderstood this direction. And that's the work. And that's the joy of studying and learning about history. And I also love the idea that in the past they made mistakes too. You know, I was studying, (laughs) uh, yeah, you know, and I think that again shows you that human beings exist. I've looked at the architecture of some churches and cathedrals and they've obviously got their measurements wrong. And in one corner, there's a very wonky arch (laughs) and and it would have been in a very dark corner, which is a good place to hide a complete mistake when you're a builder and you've bodged somebody's cathedral that had been working on for hundreds of years. (laughs) And, And I just think somebody probably stood there and went, oh, you bloody idiots, you know, <laughs> you utter fools. You've got it completely wrong. Well, nobody will notice, you know, we'll, we'll put a tapestry over it and, and, right. and turn away. Yeah. And that is the human lived experience that I think helps us understand the past as not an abstract thing, but a thing that we're actually living through somebody's past right now. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And it will be in the future. People will be analyzing what we're doing and what a podcast is, for goodness sake. Yeah. Fax machines. When's the last time any of you received a fax or sent a fax? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's a technology that's come and gone in my lifetime very quickly. And I've completely forgotten about it. But gentlemen, we've spoken a long time and, and we've waxed lyrical about this. <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts on the book. It's called The Bright Ages. It's available from all popular bookshops, I would imagine. Indeed. Both online and offline. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. If people want to see more of your work, do you have any social media or websites or anything like that that you'd want to share with the listener? Uh, I have davidmperry.com and everything can be found from there for sure. Yeah. And David and I are very active on Twitter. Um, I have a website as well, Prof Gabriel, P-R-O-F-G-A-B-R-I-E-L-E.com. And you can find kind of everything there. And I'd love to hear from people. Yeah. Come find us on Twitter. That's really where we spend way too much time. Yes. Where the action happens. Well, that's right. What about archiving Twitter? Is that going to be archived and searchable in due course? I mean, well, there's a whole I other mean, subject there to talk, we, about. We talk yeah. about. We talk about lost information. I think yes, the assumption that I think the assumption that in 500 years, everything that we're producing now will be easily fine. I mean, you know, all these floppy disks and floptical drives. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, that's right. Yeah. I think we're going to lose more than we expect. Yes. So let's talk about that in 500 years. as yeah. <laughs> Very briefly, I was talking with a colleague literally yesterday who was doing a project on this, uh, this biography and he was in touch with the daughter and the daughter said like, oh, he kept all these notes, these diaries, like you can have them. They were on five and a quarter inch floppy disks. 
So the guy has no idea what to do with them. That's again, that's a technology that has come and gone in my lifetime. Mm. Yes, absolutely. It is pretty frightening that possibly the doomsday book written on vellum and kept will probably outlast other people's diaries that are written in the last decade stored on five and a quarter inch copies. But if it outlasts Twitter, that's going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I think we'll end it there, gentlemen. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'd love to talk more about this period in history as well. So if you can arrange time and uh, another conversation, I'd be delighted. It's It's been great. Anytime. This has been wonderful. Anytime. Thank you. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.